Amen. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Andre Allen. Not bad for a rebel, black bear, land shark. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. It was great. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Glenn. I told Glenn that uh, Harvey was making up for what he implied Wednesday night as he was leading the prayer service. He was trying to compliment Glenn, but it came out something like this. Y'all remember that one time Glenn picked out a good song for us to sing in church? <laughs> that was a really good song. <laughs> I can identify with it because I've been there so many times myself. Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 30. I'm sorry, John chapter 7, verse 30. Y'all thought we were doing some remedial work this morning, didn't you? I haven't been happy with some of your progress. So consider this spiritual detention of sorts. No, John 7, verse 30. Throughout John chapter 7, our theme has been and, and is and will remain responding to Jesus because that's what's going on in the, in the chapter. Jesus is teaching at the festival of tabernacles or booths and there are many, many people gathered in Jerusalem for this. And the chapter is a lesson on the multiple ways that people responded to Him, and even the ways that people respond to Jesus today. We have already said and seen that ultimately there are but two ways that people respond to Jesus. One is they receive Him through faith, or if they don't receive Him through faith, they reject Him. But beginning last Sunday morning, we began to look at the many ways that people may respond to Jesus initially or instantly or the multiple ways that people may be responding to Jesus currently. We're looking at four of them. We covered the first of those last Sunday morning, and we saw then that some people respond to Jesus with doubt. In their minds, it is possible that Jesus is who He says He is, but based on their own misunderstanding. They have all but eliminated that, that possibility. It isn't probable at all that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That brings us to this morning. And we will begin with the second way that people respond to Jesus. And it is that some people respond to Jesus 
initially or immediately or even currently with anger. Some people respond to Jesus with anger. And we have multiple examples of this in our nation and in our world today, do we not? People that aren't sort of 50-50 on Jesus. People that aren't really concerned with Jesus, but people that have an emotional response to Jesus in a negative way, with anger. In the first 24 verses of John 7, we saw how the world responded to Jesus with hatred. And even a hatred that led to a conspiracy that would lead to His being crucified. This is sort of likened to that. Some people respond to Jesus with anger. Look at verse 30. Then, that is, after Jesus has made His way into the temple complex and begun to teach and to preach, then they tried to seize Him. Yet no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. What we see there in verse 30 is people responding to Jesus with anger. I mean, they want to physically take hold of Him. They want to beat Him up. They want to do Him bodily harm. They want to do away with Him. They respond to Him with anger. But in the second part of verse 30, we see that it's a futile anger with which they respond to Jesus, didn't we? Yet no one laid a hand on Him. They wanted to, but they could not lay a hand on Jesus. It was a futile anger. Last Sunday morning in my prayer time before you, uh, I read the second psalm. Do you remember that or are you familiar with the second psalm where it talks about people that are angry against the Lord and enraged about His anointed one and they plot together against the Lord and against His anointed one, they're in conspiracy with one another against the Lord, against God the Father and His chosen Son. But it's all in vain. Amen? Psalm 2, it's all in vain. So much so that the Lord is not bothered by it at all, but Psalm 2 pictured God laughing at their anger against Him scoffing at their conspiracy against Him and against His Son. And here we see again, it is a futile anger. I say it's futile because Jesus in this instance was protected by His hour. Again, verse 30 says, they wanted to seize Him, they tried to seize Him, Yet no one could lay a hand on Him because His hour 
had not yet come. Jesus was protected by His hour. He was protected by His time. And we've already seen Jesus mention this idea of His being motivated and moved by an hour that was before Him, a time that was before Him, and it referred to His crucifixion. It's what He had come to do. It was the end game of His mission in coming to the earth. He brought it up earlier in John chapter 7 when His brothers encouraged Him that if He really wanted to have a significant ministry, He needed to get to Jerusalem pronto. And be where the crowds were and announce Himself publicly as the Messiah and do a bunch of miracles in front of the crowds so that He could gain a following. But Jesus responded, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go like you want me to go. I'm not going to go when you want me to go because my hour has not yet come. It isn't yet my time. In our text today, we see Jesus protected by that hour. Did you know that all of us, I mean, I could start right over here with Patsy and work my way around all the way over here to Scott. And I could call us all by name and I could say, we all have a date with an hour. We all have a time. You know what time I'm referring to? A time or an hour where our life here on earth will come to an end. And it is a fixed time. The Bible speaks of our days being numbered by God before we were ever born. That's why the Scripture says that we should pray that God would teach us to number our days. Because we only have so many. And whatever we do with this one, that's one of them that will be spent. We all have an upcoming date with this hour. And we don't know when it is. When it comes to this hour, I mean, we can make our plans based on what life expectancy is. We can make our plans based on Our heredity, my mom and daddy lived a long time, my grandparents lived a long time, I've got plenty of time. But every day we hear of people that don't make it to life expectancy. We hear of people whose lives are cut short long before that of their parents, their siblings, their ancestors, their peers. They had no idea that when they woke up that morning, that their hour was very near. So there it is, out there facing us. We don't know where it is, we don't know when it's going to come, but it's there. Believers, I would say to you, 
as an encouragement to us that we are protected by our hour. We are protected by our time. I don't know who this quote originated with. Over the years, I've seen it attributed to at least ten different people from times gone by. But it really doesn't matter who it originated with because the thought is a biblical thought. The truth is a biblical truth. Because of this hour that we have, we are invincible. Until that hour comes. How about that, Superman? How about that, Superwoman? Supergirl? Those who belong to the Lord are invincible until our hour comes. Now that's not an encouragement for us to go off and live reckless lives. Because if we do so, what we may find is that our hour was destined to come in conjunction with our recklessness. But it does mean that we don't have to be bothered by the things that the people of the world are bothered by the most. That we don't have to be afraid of going to dangerous places and afraid of doing dangerous things on behalf of the Lord because we have an hour and we are protected by Until it comes. There may be people that want to lay hands on us. And to seize us. Satan certainly would love to seize you and me. But he nor others will lay a hand on us until our hour comes. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Just a a blessed truth from the Word of God. So believers, we can be encouraged by it. But unbeliever? For the one among us this morning who's never been born again, whose heart's never been changed, who has no real affection for Jesus, as hard as this would be for us to believe, Harvey referenced You know, how could you be in something like this and your heart not be moved? As hard as it is for some of us to believe, there are people here this morning who have hearts that haven't been moved by anything that's been done. I know it. There are people here this morning, and it may be you, that has a heart that is never moved by anything that goes on in here. You hear me preach the Word of God. Not that I preach greatly, but the Word of God is great. And here's all you hear every Sunday morning. Wah, 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 wah. Wah, 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 And I do it for 45 minutes every Sunday morning. And you go out and you think, Oh, that is an exercise in futility. You just don't get it. Over the years, I've had people come out after service and say, I just don't get it. 
And I have said, I know you don't. I know you don't. Is that you this morning? Look, if you can come week after week, and you can be a part of the people of God singing wonderful praise to our glorious God, and it never touches you. If you can hear these wonderful things about Jesus and His preaching and His miracles and from the Word of God, and it never moves you, it never captures your attention or your affection, hear me today. It is an indication Not that something is wrong with the singing or the song leader or the songs. Not that something is wrong with the preacher or the sermons or the Bible. But that something is wrong with you. And I'm not yelling at you. I feel for you this morning. And I want so much to reach out from where I am and put my hand in your heart and massage it to life. But I can't do that. And so I pray that God would have mercy on your soul as He has with mine and pump life into your dead heart so that you can be captured by the glory of God and the wonder of His Word. Unbeliever, that one who has none of that for Jesus, no affection for our Lord, heart never having been changed, living the same way you've always lived, you love the world a whole lot more than you love God if you have any love for God at all. You love the things of the world, you live for the things of the world. Unbeliever, the one who has never turned from your sins to follow Christ in faith. The one who has never committed your life and all that you are to Christ. I'm talking to you. Unbeliever, while the believer may be protected and comforted by the notion of our time, you are neither protected nor comforted by the knowledge that you have a date with an hour. You are warned by it. Hear the warning today. There's a time coming for you. And if that time comes before your heart has been changed, and before you've turned from your sin, primarily your sin of unbelief and having rejected Christ and having no love for Him, if it comes before you turn from that to Christ, And trust on Him to save your sinful soul. The timing of that hour will not be a time of rejoicing in your life. It'll be a time of horror. And in that instant, that instant where it's too late for the first time, you'll see You'll see how wrong you always were. But it will be too late to do anything about it. Unbeliever, be warned. 
by the hour that is appointed for you. Be warned. And before it's too late, you pray that God would have mercy on your soul and grant you salvation through Jesus. And you look to Jesus and you keep looking to Jesus and you trust on Him. You follow Him in faith before it's too late. Now look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him. And this is a reference to verse 31, which we're going to cover in weeks to come, where it says that many in the crowd believed in Jesus. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him. So the chief priest and the Pharisees sent temple police to arrest Him. You know what we see there in verse 32? Same thing we saw in verse 30. People responding to Jesus with anger, right? With more anger. It's a different group this time. It's the Pharisees. And on top of that, it's the chief priests as well who were from the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and Sadducees typically hated each other. But they were united by their common hatred for Jesus. Because He was a threat to both of them. They had already been angry. In fact, every time we see the Pharisees, or for that matter, the Sadducees interacting with Jesus, it's always in the context of anger. So why were they angry with Jesus? Have you ever given that much thought? These are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, and they were the people that supposedly knew the Word of God the best, and the, the biggest teaching of the Scripture, their Scriptures, the Old Testament, was this idea that God had prepared for His people a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and deliver them. That's what their teaching that they were experts in was all about. And when He came... Rather than receiving Him with joy and celebration and the fulfillment of expectation, they hated His guts. They wanted to kill Him, and they eventually did. Why? Why, if what they had always been preaching to the people was, hey, we have a Savior coming, why would they respond that way when He came? I'll tell you why. He challenged their authority. They loved their position and their authority more than they loved the notion of a Messiah. He challenged their power. He challenged their influence. He challenged their popularity. He challenged their happiness. He challenged all of those things. He was a threat to all of those things. And for these reasons, they responded to Him with anger. I want to sum up 
the root cause of all of those things I just mentioned that Jesus threatened for them. You know, I'm talking about the power and position, authority and influence and and all of those things. Let me sum up the root of those things in one word. You really want to know why they responded to Jesus with anger? Because they were selfish. Because they were all about self. All they could think about anything, even about the coming of Jesus, was, this is going to affect me negatively. They were all about self. And as I've been studying this passage now for several weeks, this thought occurred to me for the first time that you could make the argument that all illegitimate anger is rooted in selfishness. It's rooted in this sinful pride that we have about ourselves that life is all about me. It's about me getting what I want. It is no coincidence that one of the first words that any child will ever speak right after Dada and Mama is mine. Am I lying? Am I exaggerating? It's like they know that word from the womb. You don't have, you have to teach them Dada. And look, Young parents, if you want them, young dads, if you want them to say dada first, you gotta get them off to the side and you gotta lead them in that direction. But you don't have to take them to the side and train them to say mine. They know it. They know it. So the things that make us angry in an illegitimate way are about I didn't get what I wanted when I wanted. It didn't go the way I wanted it to. And I am angry about it. Same thing was going on here. Look at verse 44. Some of them wanted to seize him. But no one laid hands on him. There is more futile anger. Another group wanting to seize him. Group wanting to seize him again. But no one could lay hands on him. So they respond to Jesus with anger. Now I want you to look with me to verse 33 and 34. And we're going to see Jesus' response to their anger. Verse 33. Then Jesus said... I am only with you for a short time. He's referenced his hour. He's referenced his time already multiple times. And what he's saying here is he was quickly approaching that time. That his crucifixion was drawing nearer and nearer. His dying on the cross to save sinners was only a short time away. But as he says this, He's also communicating to these people that are responding to Him with anger that your time is short too. I'm here, and while I'm here, you have a, a, an opportunity to hear me 
and to respond to me and to see the, the signs that I'm doing and to respond to me in faith. But that time is drawing near. I'm only going to be here a little while longer. And when I'm not here any longer, you won't have that opportunity to respond. It will be too late for you. I'm only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. We think of the death of Jesus in terms of Jesus losing, the bad guys winning the day. No, Jesus' death wasn't the gateway to a loss. It wasn't the gateway or the door to something that was worse. It was the gateway for Jesus to go back to the glory that He had known before He ever came here in the first place. It was a win for Jesus. A believer, you know when a believer dies, it's a win for them too. It's a win. It's a gateway, a pathway to glory. Jesus said in verse 34, You will look for Me, but you will not find Me. And you could take that in a literal sense, that they'd wonder where Jesus was, but they wouldn't be able to find Him. They'd hear rumors of a Messiah here, and they might think it was Jesus and go to look for Him. But there's more going on here than, than that literal sense. When He says, you'll look for Me, but you won't find Me, what I think He's getting at is that after His death and resurrection and ascension, as a judgment upon Israel for their rejection of the Savior, there were hard days coming. And there were a few decades after this life of Jesus. In an insurrection against Rome. Rome would come to Judea and Jerusalem and they would crush them. Killing a million plus of them. Blood running to a significant height in the street. The carnage was so great. And I can't help but see Jesus here looking forward to that time and thinking about the nation of Israel who several decades before would have rejected their Messiah and Him and those people crying out to God for a Savior. But they wouldn't find Him then. It'd be too late. Reminds me of one of their ancestors. Do you remember Esau from the Old Testament? Sold his birthright to his younger brother for a pot of soup. And also indicated that he had no heart for God in doing so. And after it all went down, the Bible says that he sought repentance with bitter tears. But he couldn't find it. It was too late. Too late. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come, because they would not receive him. And where he would be in heaven, they would not be headed because of their unbelief. Now, I want you to look with me to the response of the angry to Jesus' response, how they responded to His response. Verse 35 and 36. Then the Jews said to one another, Where does He intend to go so we won't find Him? 
He doesn't intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? When he references the dispersion here, because of the the history of Israel and the Jews and even what was going on here, they had been conquered so many times that when a conquering nation conquered a nation, they would take the people that were there and they would spread them out over the empire. And this is what had happened with the Jews going back for hundreds of years. It was referred to as the diaspora. They were spread out among the nations. That's why you had this large crowd in Jerusalem for the festival of booths or tabernacles. They had come back home. And so when Jesus has told them that He's going somewhere they can't come, their reasoning is, well, surely He's not going to go out there to the Gentile world and and start preaching whatever He's preaching to our Greek-speaking Jewish brothers and sisters, is He? Verse 36, what is this remark He made? You will look for Me and you will not find Me. And where I am, you cannot come. Anger leads to more anger. Did you hear me? Anger leads to more anger. Illegitimate anger never plays any role in making you more Christ-like. When we give vent to it, or voice to it, or time to it, it just makes us more angry. And it does it by way of frustration. They were angry. They end up more angry. But they they get to that place of being more angry because they're frustrated. And their frustration comes because they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. It's here that we see when one won't understand, it's connected to they can't understand. If you're like this crowd in settled unbelief, I mean, you're not budging. If you won't understand, you will find that you can understand. You can flip it around too. When one can't understand the things of God and the words of God, it's because they won't understand. So some people respond to Jesus with anger. Maybe you. Are you responding to Jesus with anger? I hope not, but I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't even at least address the possibility. Is it out of the realm of possibility that there are people among us this morning, whether here or listening in some other way, that are responding to Jesus with anger. Are you responding to Jesus with anger? If you are, remember that anger is caused by selfishness. And believers, that's even true for us. Believer, do you ever get angry at God? Have you ever gotten angry at God? Are we going to lie? Are we going to admit our sin this morning that yes, I've been angry at God before? May not have lasted long, but I've had, I've had thoughts where I questioned God and, and had some frustration towards God. Anger at Him. 
Even for us believers, do you know why we get angry at God? Because we're selfish too. That selfish vein of sin still uh, pumps hard in our body. It's still there. And we can think sometimes that, hey, I'm serving God and I'm doing all this stuff and I just don't deserve this hardship in my life. This isn't the deal that I signed up for. And we'll get angry at God too. And it doesn't have anything to do with God's unrighteousness, but ours. Our own sin. Our own selfishness. Unbeliever, I want you to know that if you persist in your anger, it will separate you from God and from heaven forever. And believer, I would have you know if you were responding to God at this point in your life with anger over something, if you're a true believer, it won't separate you from God and heaven forever, but it will separate you from God and heaven on earth right now. For a time. Let's also remember that our time here is short. That today we may have an opportunity to respond to the words of Christ. But just because we have this opportunity today doesn't mean it will be here tomorrow. We have a hymn that we sing from time to time that communicates that truth. It says, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. You know what that song teaches us? A biblical truth that He may pass you by. And your time to respond may be through and no more. You may be here for 50 more years. But you'll be here hardened by God and hardened by your own sin. And you'll never respond. Don't let time pass you by. Some people respond to Jesus with anger. But I hope it's not you. I hope it's not you. The right way to respond to Jesus is with repentance over our anger, over our other sin, and with faith. And if you haven't, respond to Him in this way today. And if you have, keep responding to Jesus with repentance and faith. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?